Here we are at the Ray Homestead, just pouring a, I'm with a Zephyr Brown, representative <laughs> for the Green Party. Oh, the Zephyr Cider. And we're just pouring a nice Zephyr Cider. Slightly different spelling. Yes, that's right. But we'll, we'll, we, won't, we won't worry about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, cheers, buddy. Cheers. Um, I, guess should, um, I, I, I guess we should. I guess we should. Um, lay our cards open on the table here that we, we know each other outside of the political realm yep. for a while. Um, and I talked to Chris Penk yesterday of the National Party and it was a really nice chat. And what was great about it is it wasn't a, um, you know, in this, in this world of sound bites and political point scoring, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't one of those conversations where I was prodding to tie and try and find all the faults yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was just nice to sit down with somebody and just get to know them and talk to them a little yeah. bit about their politics Chris, Chris and their is a views. nice guy but uh, you know all, all the all the MPs well most of them are there for the, you know the right reasons so they want to do better for their communities we have different policies but you know to be an MP um, even a you know list MP like Chris and Maya um, oh, sorry Chris gets a, an electorate given to him by National, um, okay. but they work hard. It's really, it's a really hard job, especially when you've got a large constituent, exactly. constituency as well. You know? Exactly, it's a really hard job, and they work really hard, and they're doing the best for us. Um, you know, as a as a, a Green Party candidate, and and what was Rodney and now Kapriki Maharangi, I know that there is next to no chance of me being a. a um, electoral candidate. However, um, I still think that, uh, you know, we've gone down from, in Rodney, four uh, list candidates, or well, three list candidates and an electoral candidate, down to maybe two. Just rewind a little bit there, because some people don't understand all that terminology. Yep. What's a list candidate? So a list candidate, um, you have, obviously, we're, we're in an MMP environment, so you get two two votes effectively and you get to vote for the person you want to represent you and your electorate. In Rodney and now Kaipliki Maharangi, um, National has uh, huge um, margins over Labour um, and many people still think it's a first-past-the-post voting system but um, so they think it's going to be National versus Labour as far as electorates are concerned um, but you do get a second vote, and that's the party vote. And for the Green Party in particular, it's extremely important that we keep asking people for their party vote, because that's what gets us our, you know, eight MPs. Um, so, again, there are lots of people who are voting for the first time in this election. So, which vote gets you the government, and which vote gets you your MP, your local? Well, they both MP. do. So we've got 71 electorates, but 120 um, MPs. So. Uh, National will take out maybe 37 um, electorates, uh, Labour will take out uh, maybe 34 electorates and um, ACT will um, have done the deal with National to get the Epsom electorate. Um, there are seven um, Maori electorates uh, and generally it's between um, Labour and the Māori Party for those seats. Um, Labour did really well last time um, and, and got all seven, but um, I expect that um, 
the Māori Party will all be resurgent this time around and might win, might win a seat. Um, they've got some great candidates um, and even um, Marama Davidson and, and um, Tamaki Makaurau um, gets really, really good and really strong support. So it could be possible that we could take that seat as well. Um, but yeah, for most, for most of our candidates, we're just going for um, the party vote. Uh, the only two exceptions for us are Marama in Tamaki Makaurau and uh, Chloe Schwalbeck in um, Auckland Central. Because obviously one, one of the, um, you know, we've been in New Zealand for over 10 years now and um, certainly the Green Party in the UK and I guess around the world, you know, has had increasingly numbers of people representing them in Parliament uh, around the globe. <clears throat> but certainly in the UK, there's all, always that 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 consideration that it was almost a wasted vote. You know, if you had the Conservatives and the Labour, or if you had National and the Labour, and and you 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 know it was time for a change, then people would almost go against their gut instinct and just just vote, um, you know, just to try and change, just to try and change things. Yeah. Um, what's your thoughts on that? Because it's a, it's a it's a funny situation, isn't it? Yeah. So <clears throat> um, we've had MMP for uh, twenty four uh, years now, um, but a lot of people still think it's first past the post, and um, that National Labour will form the government um, with a minor party, maybe. Uh, John Key um, was pretty good at sharing sharing um, governments. He brought in um, United Future um, and the Māori Party when he didn't have to, um, but they didn't really get anything out of it. And um, the Māori Party in particular, their supporters, because they didn't have any big wins, um, went against them the next time around and went back to Labour. So it, it's a very difficult balancing act um, when you're going into government as a minor party. Um, this, the last um, election, uh, Winston Peters formed the coalition with Labour and we were supplying confidence, um, which meant that although we did have a few um, associate ministers, we were pretty much out of uh, cabinet. And that's, you know, um, where all the decisions get made. Winston's been bragging how he was um, the handbrake on a lot of decisions. Um, a man of modesty. Yeah, that's right. So um, I, I don't know about you, but if I, if I was driving a car and someone kept pulling the handbrake on, I'd be pulling over and I'd be <laughs> kicking them out of the car because that's no way to get anywhere. So and it looks like this election that Winston's, you know, very marginal. However, the Green Party may or may not um, be asked to form a coalition, depending on where Labour ends up and where we end up. Now, this brings us on to a sort of an interesting topic. And actually, before we do that, why the hell did you decide to become a politician? <laughs> well, yeah, so I'm, I'm not going to be it. I'm, I'm number, number 28 on, on the Green Party list. So what does that mean, first of all? These yeah. party lists, like people move up and yeah, down their party right. lists. Up, up and down their party lists. So if you're, um, if you're uh, number, say, 40-something on the Labour list, you're probably going to get a seat. You're probably going to get a, a seat in Parliament. Um, if you're um, number 50 to 60 on the list, 
not so much. You know, you pretty outside bits. Um, so you have a number of so a party has a number of seats in parliament. Yeah, that's and obviously right. they fill that from the top positions on the list. That's exactly it. Yeah. And then obviously if you have less people represented in parliament, you need to be higher up your party list in order to stand a chance. Yeah, that's right. Because okay. you've got to, you, you first of all you've got you've got those electorate seats to fill. So you know national will get you know thirty in the mid thirties around there, um, and then they will have you know maybe ten other. Um, on current polling, maybe 10 other people to put in. So, you know, the um, list um, current, currently, you've got um, Goldsmith at number three on the list, so he'd go first because he, he's not sitting, he's not going to get in an Epsom which, <laughs> because they've done the deal. So he's going to give that up for David Seymour and he's going to get in on the list unless they have a total disaster and get below 20 something percent. God, all this seems so far removed from actually getting something done for the country. Well, that's right, yeah. But, you know... Um, you have to have some system. Yeah, that's right. You have to have some system. So I'm number 28 on the list, and there's no chance of me getting in. There's no chance of me winning this this um, electorate for the Green Party. Um, you know, Chris Pink will be maybe 17,000 votes ahead of me. Okay. Um, and that's a, that's a massive, massive um, majority to overcome. Um, I, think, and I think you're just as handsome, though. <laughs> well, so we're lucky this is we're lucky this is audio because I've got a face for radio. Um, and um, when I when I was I, we did a meet the candidates uh, in Kumu um, via Facebook Live last week, and you know I'm I'm a, a, a white middle aged bald guy, so I could be a national party candidate. <laughs> Um, Steady. Yeah, but, you know, they've got that young, handsome guy, Chris Pink. So, yeah. Checks in the post. Yeah, that's right. However, my mother, you know, my mother was born in um, Rotorua. Uh, we are Ngāti Whakaui, Ngāti Pikiau. Um, Dad was born in Tonga, and he moved to, um, here when he was 17. So I've got a, a lot of um, Māori and Pacifica. So how the uh, hell did you hand up ginger? Oh, yeah, throwbacks. <laughs> There's a lot of English. Yeah. Throwbacks. Dad, uh, my grandfather was a um, on my mother's side was like a playboy, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> who uh, who came over to New Zealand just for hunting and fishing, and um, yeah, had a few kids. He took my mother and her sister back to back to England, um, but my mother was too brown, even though she was fairly white. Um, she was too brown, and um, got sent back to New Zealand. Yeah, tragic. As, you know, I'm, I come from Irish Irish heritage, and <clears throat> you know, my, my father came over in in the fifties, and there were still no blacks, no Irish, no dogs signs on all of the rental accommodation. Yeah. So yeah, and I, I, sometimes I wonder whether we've actually come much further than that. <laughs> well, yeah. Um. We're still, we're still, it's still a journey. Still a journey. It's still a journey. So look, now let's look at <laughs> the question was, was you know, you're you're a lovely guy and could quite happily spend an afternoon or six putting the world right with you. But why, why the move into so? First of all, your background when I knew you was sort yep. of the print industry and that type of thing. Yeah, that's right. So so why the move into into politics? What's the, what, so what up, was the push? Up, um, at the last election, um, Matilda Toure uh, came out with um, her announcement that. Um, you know, she'd um, uh, received money that she shouldn't have uh, for, uh, you know, benefit fraud for another term. Um, and 
um, the backlash against her uh, for that um, admission um, and the, the vicious um, attacks on her for that um, and um, for people who, you know, are in that, those positions really spurred me to, to um, get active within the party. I'd voted for Greens and Labour um, for, you know, since I'd come back from the UK in 2004. Um, but that really spurred me to get involved in, in the party and to do what I could for the party. Um, they were really desperate at that time. Unfortunately, we got through it um, and became part of the coalition. But, um, you know, the Greens are always going to struggle uh, to get more than 6 or 7% um, in the current climate. Um, Labour is extremely popular. So we share our voters. Um, we're, you know, we're f much further left um, on, the, on the scale than Labour are. Um, we're much more progressive, um, and I think our policies um, are what, what are required um, for facing the, the numerous crises that we have coming up. So obviously the, the climate crisis is uh, number one for me, um, but the social inequity that continues to happen in New Zealand um, is also uh, paramount. Um, the Green Party has four principles, obviously ecological wisdom and social equality, um, but there's also um, appropriate decision-making and non-violence. Mm. And I think the non-violence is extremely important in a, in a culture where we suffer from um, huge amounts of family violence. Um, we have really high numbers of, of youth um, committing suicide because of that family violence. Um, so I think that's something that we can really, really look at. Um, and you need a progressive party to get those, those across because yeah. Labour just aren't doing it. As much as they said they'll be transformational, they're just not. Well, I guess, you know, put in, put in playing devil's advocate to a degree. <clears throat> and, you, you, you know, my politics are, is very similar to your politics. I've always been centre-left, you know, the typical centre-left, muesli-eating Guardian reader yep. <laughs> kind of thing. Um, but first of all, it's interesting how each country's centre, left and right, is, is, is completely relative. I was speaking to an American friend of mine the other day who is very much a Democrat socialist. Uh, and when I mentioned to him I was going to talk to Chris Pank from the National Party, he says, you know what? I said, I would have a National Party any day over the US Democrat Party. Mm. Because it is relative. Yeah, that's know, right. And let's be honest. And also... <sighs> You know, what's, refre what's refreshing to many, many um, people, and one of the reasons why I wanted to sit down and talk to four candidates and also Sandra from the um, Make It Legal campaign, um, is we live in a world of sand bites and political point scoring and people living in their, their own little social media echo chambers. Yeah, that's right. And it's actually, when you sit down, you know, I went into the meeting with Chris, with Chris and had, you know, went into, you know, met him at the Matakana pub, um, I hate to say there's a pattern. <laughs> there's a pattern. <laughs> there's a pattern emerging here. But most conversations tend to flow a little bit better after after a, a tiny bit of lubrication. Yep, absolutely. Um, but I went in expecting to have some of my stereotypes confirmed. But actually, he was a really nice guy, and we agreed on pretty much a lot of things. The methodologies and the principles and some of the some of the mechanics of it is is different from party to party. 
But it's times like that when you realise that, you know, we fundamentally want the same thing, you know. We, we, I said Everyone wants a decent society yeah. and a place for their kids to grow up in, you know, that, that um, yeah, they have um, an equal opportunity to, to get ahead. But, but it's interesting because equality is not equity. Yeah, that's right. And I, I think that's a very, you know, unless you, I, I grew up and Rachel grew up in a, well, me more so than Rachel came from a posh area. But I grew up in an area which was council estates, you know, 1970s, Birmingham. Um, fairly rough around the edges. Um, and it's when you see people who come from that background, you know, most, most, both parents might be out at work, there, must, there might be really low income. Uh, you have various drink or family issues and you realise that not everybody gets the same start in life yeah that's and you can give people equal opportunities but that only works if they're coming from the same starting point mm. so and in you know interestingly the 10 years we've been in new zealand and well the 12 years in new zealand and, and particularly the the almost 10 years we've been up in auckland one thing that's really palpable is the the growth in inequality mm. you only have to go down to auckland and see the, the rise of number of homeless people but actually Apart from that, that you just got to look on a local Facebook group and see the people struggling to find affordable accommodation. That's to rent. right. Yeah. Um, so let's let's just go through some of the some of the big issues and see what your thoughts are on that. So, first of all, you mentioned you mentioned climate, and that is the you know that is the elephant in the room for a lot of people. But also, it seems to be a thing that people seem to be able to brush under the carpet. They still think it's a long way away. Yeah, and it's not. It's not. <laughs> to take a look at California. Obi's just come to say hello to Zephyr. Yeah. He wants to give you a lick. There you go. Um, you know, California's burning. Australia will burn again this this year, unless you know um, something surprising happens. But we'll have another drought, um, and it'll get worse. Um, water security is and resilience is a problem, um, and um, Auckland's still in drought. Well, yeah, yeah. After the winter. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, it's been a very mild winter, and what what really annoys me is when the the weather channel is going. Oh, it's another beautiful sunny day, and it's going. We need it cold in winter, and we need to rain because that's what plants need. They need a break. They can't grow all the time. Only thing that grows all the time is cancer, and it's really bad. <laughs> and it was I was mentioned to Chris when I saw him the other day that um, I've forget where I was reading it, probably The Guardian being a bit of a lefty, um, but there was a climate report that it looks like two degrees rise is fairly unavoidable. Unavoidable, absolutely, we're at 1.5. Yeah, and, it, and it, it appears logically that even, you know, close to home with the Antarctic um, ice shelves, etc., and, and yep. the, most of that, it looks like even New Zealand, it might take two or three generations, but a two and a half metre to three metre rise in sea level is, is even unavoidable at the moment. Yeah, that's right. You know, Point Wells will be underwater, Whangateau will be underwater. Um, our roads will be cut off, uh, you know, where we live. Um, so, it, it, but that's, that's, that people don't, don't really understand what, what it means. And what it really means is it's not about Point Wells being underwater. Those people are rich enough they could start again, move, build new houses. Um, but it's the Bangladesh, it's the India, it's the Africa, it's, it's those billions of people who live on marginal places who are not going to be able to live there anymore and they are going to move. And we saw what a few million people out of Syria um, caused 
carnage in in Europe. Try half a billion moving from you know India and Southeast Asia because they're going to move to countries that are relatively stable, like Australia and like New Zealand, and that is going to be it horrendous. Is. And that's where that's where it becomes. Um, but the, the, the issue with this is, is as much of an existential threat this is to us all. It's not tangible yeah. in every, people's everyday life. Yeah. So it's easy to sort of go, what about the economy? What about jobs? What about this? Which are all important and obviously, but then there feels like there's a need for a fundamental change, uh, a change of paradigm shift yeah. in politics and society. Yeah, people think of the economy as, as um, you know, something separate from us, but the economy is made up of people. There, there's, we are the economy. You know, if we're healthy, the economy is healthy. If we have confidence, the economy, the, the economy is us. You know, it's not something. It's not a goal. It's not a target. It's us. Mm. So it's made up of people and businesses made up of people, and um, the COVID response protected people because that's the best way to protect the economy. As a as a businessman, I got a hundred families or a hundred people to to look after and their families. So. If, if we didn't have the response we had, and where everyone pitched in, um, and if it was left to, you know, up to individual businesses to try and protect themselves, um, it would be a lottery of which businesses would go under. Because as soon as you've got a case in your business, that business shuts down. You've got to protect people, yeah? So, um, basic OSH. You know, you, you can't operate if people have got COVID in your business because, you know, you've got to protect people. So if uh, that business had to shut down for two weeks, generally businesses can't survive it. Most most businesses um, did, did okay through the lockdowns, through the government subsidies. Um, there were certain sectors, tourism and education, which are hit particularly hard. But, um, you know... Most have pulled through gradually, and we're coming back. Um, the the um, retailers are coming back, and people are still spending money. They're still consuming, um, and businesses and the economy will survive. Um, I don't think um, having a lottery on which businesses survive um, is a good thing. What do you mean by lot lottery? Well, <clears throat> you know, if you don't manage it, then it's um, you, you don't know which businesses are going to get it, going to get hit. We know that tourism and education are going to get hit because we've we've shut the borders. Um, but we we protect as much as possible all the essential services, so the supermarkets. Um, gave them really good guidelines, made sure everyone entering those businesses mm. uh, knew what they were doing, um, and a lot of people went online anyway. But. Um, you know, if you were not to bring in those restrictions and, and give those give those guidance messages, um, and people were just allowed to roam free, and community transmission was allowed to go unchecked, um, you know, you'd see various supermarkets shut down all over the place. You'd see mm. our health system shut down because all the nurses and doctors would be sick. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, it's a, it'll be a lottery of which one's going to survive because we don't know which one's going to get hit. <coughs> So, so look, let paint a picture for me if you like. So, we, we here we are with generations and generations of of the same 
politics, the same perceived political values that have been going since Adam was a boy, or since certainly since Adam Smith was a boy. <laughs> and what, so what, I mean, I'm more interested in, in you personally rather than the Green Party, but obviously that they cross over in many ways. How and why does the political landscape and people's ideas on what makes an effective society need to change? Um, <clears throat> well, uh, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a socialist. Um, that doesn't mean communists. I don't think that communism exists. We've, we've sort of fascist regimes and oligarchies, but, um, you know, socialism for me means believing in people and believing in the power of community. Now, everyone understands the power of community. Um, RSAs understand power of community, Lions Clubs understand power of community, all the volunteer organisations that everyone that helps out understand the power of community. And I, I believe in the power of community, that's why I'm a socialist, because I believe if everyone pulls together we can all get, make this place a better, better world for everyone. If we devolve into um, I'm alright Jack, and what, what's, I'm, I'm okay but I don't care about you, which is you know, how some some countries are going, um, uh, then we lose that power of community and it could end up extremely badly. So um, I think um, we need to, to understand that um, we need everyone else in our community for everyone to survive, to work together. Um, and that's, that's what politics is for me, is for people coming together <coughs> and um, it doesn't have to be um, a Labour coalition with the Greens. It could be, um, you know, I think there's not enough cross-party cross um, politics. So one of the constant th questions I get asked is, why won't the Greens work with National in a, a government? Why won't they go into a coalition with the with National Party? Um, and it's mainly because their, their social policies don't align with ours enough. Um, they, they, they could easily steal our environmental policies and enact them. Um, everyone could, could um, take all our environmental policies and enact them if they want, but they don't. Um, they just don't, won't go far enough um, because of some you know, economic argument that'll cost too much at the, for some sector of the of the economy. So um, let's, let's, let's just go off on a bit of a tangent there. So <clears throat> talk to me about the, the, green environment, the Greens' environmental policies and how that stands up against Labour or National or some of the other parties. Yeah, so, uh, you know, we've seen just today um, Labour has announced some um, uh, action against uh, dropping single-use plastics. Um, but the Greens would go... It's just a lot further, and we go, go a lot faster than than um, most other parties. So our um, our climate policies, carbon zero, <coughs> is currently 2050. That's too too long. We need to get it happening faster. So why is that? Why is that too long? Uh, <coughs> well, we're already at 1.5% temperature increase, and if we get over 2%, it's going to be horrendous. 
So the whole world needs to move faster. And we are seeing it from, you know, the UK and... Um, Germany. China, China, yeah, China, China. even China has, has made announcements. Well, so. I said to Chris today, it's interesting how, you know, one of the things I think... We're legards. Yeah, well, it's actually, it, it, in some respects, it's a fault of some political systems. And certainly I'm not going to stand up for the, the Chinese and all of their human rights abuses and all that type of thing. Yeah, but right. interesting, one thing that comes out of it is they don't have this three or four year election cycle. They have like a hundred year vision. Yeah, that's right. And, so, and it gets so connected. So actually things get done. And their long-term environmental vision is actually reasonably sensible. Like we've got to do all of these crazy coal power stations first of all until technology catches up and we can be sustainable. Then we're going to, you know, in many ways, they're probably leading the green revolution. Well, yeah, they've, they've got a long way to go because they've got so many coal power stations and they're still building them. But you know, and um, and the environmental damage they do when they're building those gigantic dams uh, over local overriding local communities, um, just destroying villages, whatever, without any, any due process um, is pretty horrendous too. But they certainly understand that if, we, if they don't take action on climate, it'll get a lot worse for everybody, uh, certainly for them. Um, so yeah, the, they, they do understand it and a lot of countries do understand it. And I don't think New Zealand really feels it. Mm. We just don't feel it enough. Well, I think one of the interesting things certainly living rurally and being surrounded by dairy farmers and cattle farming and that kind of thing and again um full disclosure right you know i do eat meat but it's probably only once a week or something like that um mostly for health reasons but um but it's you know when i do eat meat it's it's locally sustained yep. or you know yep. our friends or that type of thing um so that was the thing so here we are in this rural area and whenever i talk to some people about green policy and stuff they go ah oh, you're just bashing the farmers the, the the agricultural sector is responsible for so much of new zealand's gdp yada 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 uh, you can't we can't do this we can't do that you know um we need to look <coughs> we, we need to look elsewhere to try and solve the problem and that's not the case surely no, it's, it's not the case. So how can we how can we build a, 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 how can we acknowledge our climate um, responsibilities and yet protect our GDP and wealth from our agriculture industry? Well, so for a start, dairy isn't a big isn't, isn't it, it isn't the huge part of our GDP that people think it is. Okay, so let's go into that a little bit. Why? What is it, and why? Why? Why do we? Why we have this misconception that it is? Oh, historically, it okay. was, but okay. now property is. Okay. You know, <laughs> property, education, tourism. Those right. are our, those are our big ones. Um, and technology, increasingly. Increasingly, yep. Yeah. yep. Okay. Uh, certainly, you know, we could do more on film and and. Um, um, well, the filming industry is going, I mean, obviously that's sort of my passion to a degree and it, it, the whole of the world seems to be in West Auckland filming something at the minute. Yeah, because it's COVID free and they can get a production started and run without having interruptions. Yeah. They're not interrupted by you know, forest fires in California <laughs> or Australia. <laughs> they're not interrupted by COVID. Their right. people, their, their talent um, can have, you know, a decent lifestyle here and um, do what they need to do for the, you know, those productions run a long time, two or three years. Okay, so back on track. Yeah. Let's talk about the, the, the agriculture. So, yeah, so agriculture. apart from the fact, from the misconception that it, it, this is our primary industry, which it probably no longer is to a degree. Yeah, well, all of agriculture would be, you know, 
a much bigger part, but daring isn't isn't that that all the be on all and end all. However, so um, what, so what the, do the, we, the greens yeah. the greens um, absolutely acknowledge that um, farming is essential. You know, all we want is it to be less polluting. So emissions is a problem, and we need to do something about that. But they need to start talking about it and looking at solutions, not ignoring it. So it's not that we're attacking farmers. We would love to to help farmers as much as possible get on board with uh, sustainable farming. So you know, um, we there are so sustainable farming. What does that look like to you? Uh, so probably um, better soil cultures through uh, regenerative farming. So less artificial fertilizers, um, less monocrops. Um, yeah more more resilience um, around um, uh, farm management so they they have farm you know those farm management plans that they're all talking about at the moment um, so more riparian planting to protect the the, the waterways um, more um, forestry or forestry blocks where where um, it's suitable um, more interlinking of of um, you know those forested areas so that um, you know you, you can get movement of animals and bird life through through areas rather than just you know fields and fields um, but yeah so you know they might have to to, to plant up you know one or two percent of farm um, but overall um, it protects from erosion um, you get less nitrogen seeping leaching through the waterways um, and hopefully um, less intensive farming will lead to um, better um, marketing outcomes um, uh, overseas so you know most a lot of our stuff is sent overseas not yeah because let's be honest I mean you know, we moved to New Zealand for a variety of reasons, but you know, one of the reasons is it's one of the very few countries in the world that can feed and water itself. Yeah, that's it right. Be. Yeah, um, and we have a spectacular climate. I mean, here we are. You're looking like a, a slightly uncomfortable ginger haired guy there in yeah. the sun. So I, think I, you I used to have ginger haired. Now it's pretty much just your eyebrows. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> I put the hat on. So um, that's another thing. So I mean, so look, I mean, with with farming, and I think what's interesting about this is there's lots of examples of these sustainable farming practices, both in New Zealand and around the world, that have directly addressed the 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 criticisms or concerns about the greenies, if you like, because they've actually shown to be effective and they've reduced the number of fertilizers and pesticides yeah, and one right. thing or another and to no detriment whatsoever in fact it's increased yields and it's increased the value of crops and increased the value of exports because um you know while not being classed as organic you know that they're, they're, they're farmed in a much more sustainable and responsible way yeah and we're we're a niche producer you know grass-fed beef is is niche um it's you know fact, leave factory farming um to the overseas markets don't don't chase chase um, cost reduction um, for cost reduction sake because um, you'll get a h higher dollar um, for your product um, chasing that niche market you know high quality um, sustainably farmed um, produce gets much better money 
you know, organic produce gets much better money than mm. um, intensively farmed. I mean, uh, you know, we have to be, you know, it, we're in a reasonably fortunate position that even most supermarket shelves packed, you know, vacuum packed plastic beef or whatever, or lamb, is still mostly grass fed yeah, in, right. in New Zealand, which is unheard of around the world. Um, and then you, you'll you'll get the you know conversely you'll get the other argument that, that oh you know we can we can control emissions and we control some of the environmental impact of of dairy farming by having these big mega indoor cow farms <laughs> that we see popping up in various places. Yeah, uh, I mean everything in in your, your heart kind of screams out no about that. But is there any science? Is there any logical science behind that, or is it or is it just a smokescreen? Well, I think they can leave it to countries that need to do it. Right, so, okay. you know, um, I don't think we need to do it. I don't think we should do it. Um, I think trying to compete in that area will lose. Mm. You know, I, I, I think, yeah, that's not our, that's not our swing lane. Mm. Um, we should keep, we're a small producer in the worldwide mm. um, market. Um, we should keep, keep going for the high-end markets, mm. um, high-end dollars and produce you know sustainably where we can organically um and yeah sell ourselves on that um i've seen it in, in many markets so i look at the market i'm, I'm in um, producing magazines and you know the the mass media magazines are dying you know newspapers are dying mass media magazines are dying but the niche magazines are surviving <laughs> so you know you find your niche and you can make it work, but going for the for the low end, going for the high volume, um, isn't going to work for us. We can't compete in the world. You know, we're stuck in a corner. We've got high transport costs to start off with. You know, so going for the low end doesn't going to work. Mm. Um, we got to go for the high end. Right. So look, we could spend another two hours talking about farming <laughs> quite yeah. easily, but let's let's sort of move on and and. You know, we're here, you know, we've got a little place, not, you know, we're sitting in a, a little garden here, not too far from Goat Island. And interestingly, it's a slight valley with two creeks running down both sides. And we're surrounded by either beef or dairy mm. uh, and, and sheep farmers. And, you know, when the rain comes, the creeks are that lovely frothy brown yeah. colour from the runoff, which goes directly into Goat Island Marine Reserve. Yeah. Okay, and yeah, all of that type of stuff. You know, we don't we don't add to that, but we notice it passing through, mm. and it doesn't take a, a a genius to see that there's something fundamentally screwed up about that. Yeah, and and it's not like it it's it's not like it's a, a thing that is incredibly difficult to solve. Uh, that's right. So um, uh, sedimentation into our harbours is horrendous. I look at, um, at my local harbour, Fungatio. And that used to be golden sands 50 years ago, 30 years ago. Um, and now it's badly silted. Uh, mangroves are growing everywhere. Um, and uh, the cockles. Um, I don't you know, think you've not been able to take them for, a, for, decade. for yeah, yeah. a decade. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it's not going to not going to reopen. The sedimentation is just too bad. Um, and that used to be a deep, <laughs> fairly deep water harbour. Yeah. You know, they used to have boat boilers in there um, back in the day. And, you know, that little big Omaha wharf used to be a, a dairy where supplies used to come in by a large boat um, and unload and go out to the farms. Um, you know, the channel is, is 
tiny now. Well, yeah, whether <laughs> and you can barely, you can barely kayak across the harbour <laughs> at high tide <laughs> exactly without rubbing the bottom of the boat or the kayak. But regardless of whether it's you know a little a little creek running into Goat Island or sedimentation in Fungatiara Harbour or the the state of the water in the the Waikato. Um, it seems a fundamental thing for a country to be able to function is clean waterways. Clean waterways, that's exactly it. So, you know. But I suppose the difficulty, the difficulty, the difficulty is it's, it's a difficult thing to put a dollar value on. We've made, we've, we've got clean, you know, clean water policies, um, which go hand in hand with our, with our um, sustainable farming policies. So what are they? Uh, so work with farmers to get more regenerative farming, um, lower their their um, fertilisers, um, artificial fertiliser, um, again get that riparian planting to stop the sedimentation sweeping down. We'd also have to work with a lot of property developers. But um, so generally, what what the Greens propose is that um, we will we will uh, tax polluters and we will use the money that's raised. Um, through those targeted taxes in the same area. So to incentivise, um, in, in the case of farmers, farmers transitioning away from, you know, the, the high polluting area into clean farming. You know, we do it with transport. So our clean car um, policies were to move away from high emission vehicles into low emission vehicles. So you put some taxes on high emission vehicles and you incentivise low emission vehicles and mm. hopefully people come along with that. Um, uh, we have, you know, the, the same uh, for water policies. So um, people who are found to be polluting the water uh, get taxed and um, the money is spent on creating funds or to help them transition away from their polluting, right. polluting ways, and you have to have examples and work with work with the um, industries, um, industry bodies, to make sure that everyone's on board with it. You know, change management is really hard, mm. um, and it needs to come from within. They they've got to want to move, and most mm. a lot of farmers do want to move. There are some real stuck in the muds and, and fed farmers, mm -hmm. but you know, um, when we work with with uh, the industry bodies. To come up with these these um, programs, um, we can make real change happen, but it's got to come from within. Mm. So you know we're not imposing stuff on on farmers. We're working with their industry bodies to come up with um, policies that will help them transition. That's what we try and do, mm. um, and we do it with all you know all um, sectors. So you know the carbon zero bill, um, you know. We consulted all all the parties, you know, and all the parties were on board. National's trying to backtrack now and saying they're going to make changes, but um, at the time we got broad consensus across all par parties that this is the way we want to move, and and we got got that through. Um, now we need the same for things like domestic violence. Um, we need the same for uh, farming. We need the same for uh, water. Um, policies that aren't going to change every three years mm. um, and the only way to do that is to get the get the um, industry bodies on board and let them lead it and sell it into their members mm. because otherwise everyone's just going to fight it and as soon as we change government it's going to be out the window again. Mm. It's interesting because the whole climate change and uh, climate change and agriculture and farming issue it all 
sort of stems to energy in a way, in that, it, it, you know, let's just play utopia at a minute. Let's say we crack, we crack cheap, unpolluting, uh, you know, inexhaustible energy resources, you know, in a decade. Um, that solves a lot of issues for people, but we're, not, we're, not, we're not about to do that. You yeah, know, you know, you might get you know fusion or fission or I forget which yeah, one it is right. it's going, or we might be able to do other things. But one of the things that's always surprised and it, it surprised me from the minute we arrived in New Zealand was this is a hell, of, especially coming from especially coming from Birmingham in the UK. This is a hell of a sunny country. Yeah, and it was very interesting watching even places fairly close to home in Australia with their solar energy. Um, incentivizations and subsidies to get people to put three or four or five or six or ten kilowatt arrays on their roof. Um, you know, and people talk about, um, you know, we've still got Huntley, which fires up now and then in peak times and that type of thing. Yeah. Um, whether that changes with the closure of the smelter, we'll, we'll wait to see, I guess. Yeah. Um, but you've still got National and um, New Zealand First trying to keep that open and give another $50 million a year to um, so why? Rio Tinto. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know but why. to the smelter, you mean? They're yeah, trying to keep it open. Yeah. Yeah, but it's just aluminium prices have crashed worldwide and it's not financially viable, should Yeah, they? yeah. So they're using straw man arguments like it's clean aluminium. Um, right, just and, because it's yeah, powered from hydro. Yeah, that's okay. right. But, you know... But, are, but that hydro consumption means that occasionally Auckland needs to wind Huntley up at peak times, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, if we could move that 14% of, of um, uh, power from um, the bottom of the South Island up, um, then that would help, help power resilience and it would certainly go a long way to you know, get 100% um, renewable energy in New Zealand. But sticking a three kilowatt array on everybody's roof where it's fairly sunny solves that even faster. Well, and a battery. Yeah, yeah and a battery. So, um, uh, you know, we've got um, um, policies for state houses, definitely. Okay. Um, to, so, what, to, so what are they? Uh, to put solar on state houses when okay. we build them um, and retrofit them to, to existing state houses to help with, uh, you know, um, resilience um, and reduce the bills for um, the tenants. Um, and same with schools. We've got policies to put um, more solar into schools and, and move away from the, the coal boilers or the gas boilers that they've currently got. But it still staggers me, especially when you look around the world to other examples, say Germany, for example, where you know if you build a new house or even if you want to put a... Don't quote me on this because... And again, I'll, I'll say this through all of these radio interviews. Sometimes I haven't got a clue what I'm talking about. <laughs> but from what I understand, even countries like Germany or places like that, where you know, even if you want to remodel your house or upgrade your kitchen or build a new house, you can't do it without retrofitting solar to your roof. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So you know, it's one thing sticking an array on a school or on a yeah. business, but what's stopping what's stopping the what's stopping it being rolled out domestically? Uh, Why don't we turn two-way points into a big battery, so, a battery know, factory, and, yeah, so and, a, and a panel what, factory? What, what was stopping people from putting water tanks um, uh, to their houses in Auckland? Um, policy, <laughs> local government policy was was stopping them. Yeah, uh, they, well, they said you put, you can't do that because we've got water care and you need to pay for it. That worked well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Droughts, one two hundred year droughts. Oh, maybe we should get some water tanks. Um, oh, they're really ugly. Uh, we'll uh, stick them under the house when you yeah, build in the house. Exactly. Water security is a lot more important than, you know, your aesthetics. 
Um, people but, need but, that can, but the thing is, that's fundamentally, you know, I mean, aesthetic, I, you know, it's, it's horrible when you walk down a beautiful period street in London or Belgium or something and everybody's got their wheelie bins outside and all that type of thing. Yeah. And that's one thing. But we're talking about a water tank. When you, you know, if you go to Millwater and you see these hundreds of houses or Silverdale being, being thrown up, well, it doesn't take much to just dig a deep hole and put a 25,000 litre tank on the Yeah, that's right. But it's more cost to the house. More regulation, like you know, and and it's three hours on a digger. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> big yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, downgrade your bathroom just slightly. <laughs> that'll pay for it. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. But um, you sorry, know, I mean we're joking and we're being a little bit facetious yeah. about this, but fundamentally it seems a bit of a you need, need resilience in the system, and um, yeah, we haven't we haven't invested in the infrastructure, particularly in water, but it's the same with power. So, you know, we haven't invested in the infrastructure. Um, there's a lack of investment. So, um, But certainly there's, a, there's an argument to actually moving away from infrastructure to, to, to local networks and no, local uh, resilience rather yeah. than as a grid. Yeah, that's right. So um, it does cost more, mm-hmm. um, but the taxpayer isn't paying for it. So the, the local user is paying for it. Mm. Um, and um, you there are arguments around, um, you know, all the manufacture of the solar panels and what do you do after do with the solar panels afterwards? They last for 25 years, so that's pretty good. Um, and you know, how are we going to recycle them afterwards? That sort of stuff. Mm. You get the same sort of arguments with batteries and EVs. Um, and we're kicking that can down the road a, a little, but um, you know, EV, EV batteries can easily go into to home storage. Um, so that's that's great. Well, it's like I mean, I've I've got a, you know, Rachel, I've got a, a couple of cars. One of them is a 2011 Nissan Leaf, which was probably originally 24 kilowatt hours. It's probably luckily maybe 17 at the minute or something like that. Yeah. And look, here's the reality of it. You know, look, I'll, I'll disclose here. So we've we've financed that over a couple of years. It's probably costing us four. So it's costing us say 400 bucks a month to get that car. Even doing some basic calculations was even. On, even taking into account what we're paying on electricity to charge it up, we're saving probably 200 to $250 worth of fuel a month. Yeah. Then if I add on top of that the cost of oil and servicing and yeah. the, the, that type of thing, it's probably actually costing us nothing to have that car over that initial two-year period. And once that two-year period's over, we're up 400 bucks a month. Yeah. Okay. And then let's say, okay, you know, most of our journeys are probably 50K, 25k it's probably got a 100k range at the minute yeah um but then there's nothing to say in in another two or three years time when the battery drops a little bit lower i mean it's a 10 year old battery already but it's still holding it well in a in a couple of years time when it drops a little bit lower there'll probably be an aftermarket battery for that car which might cost six thousand dollars that's right okay i can then probably take that battery out of that car stick it in a power wall and it can be used for home energy stuff. that's exactly it right so, <laughs> for another 10 years yeah and batteries aren't going to get more expensive yeah i think right. like you was i think elon musk and tesla have just announced their their 50 increase in battery efficiency yeah, that's and right. stuff and re- um, reduction in cost reduction in cost so again to me the the other kind of big environmental elephant in the room in new zealand is we should be incentivizing the switch to evs for most people i mean you know i can't i can drive to wellington and back on that but you just have to plan your journey yeah. and it's a bit of a pain in the ass to be quite frank yeah. um but 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 surely you know, the ideal situation with us would be a 10k solar array, an old Nissan Leaf battery, and that's us doing our bit to take the pressure off the electricity grid. That's right. 
Yeah, that's exactly it. And you've got resilience and, and we'll need that resilience going forward. So, you know, we, we do have the, the clean car standard and the um, clean car discount policies to, to not, not just to improve the uptake of EVs, but to improve the uptake of low emission vehicles. Mm. And every other country in the world um, is starting to have, you know, um, well, most of them have had it for a long time. Um, they've been reducing their emission um, standards for, vet, for manufacturers, but we haven't, which means we get all the dirty cars, you know, the high emission cars that they can't sell anywhere else in the world. Right. So, you know, there are low emission um, cars that we could have gotten, but instead we're paying premium dollars for high emission cars. Yeah. Um, same vehicle, effectively, but just, you know, doesn't have the, the emission standards as it does in the UK. No, and this is one, not, not just the UK. It's one of these things where, again, people. I, I think the, the, one of the issues we have is is people are expecting all of these changes to be slow, but lots of these environmental changes are exponential. Yeah, yeah. And also, lots of the changes in traditional business business model are exponential. So, you know, Holden just went bump not long ago, and they were really dragging their feet away from their. Their, their V8 image, you know, they, they were convinced that people still wanted to buy V8 utes and yeah. this. And when people pointed out to them, actually below the age of 25, people just want to know whether they can connect their, if it's got Apple, whether it's got AirPlay or, or CarPlay and they can, they can plug their iPhone in. Yeah, that's right. And what's the fuel economy like? Yeah, that's right. But they left it too late and the demand obviously went through the floor. Yeah. And here we're in a position where where Tesla is is worth more money than Ford, yeah, and probably GM combined. Yeah, yeah, it's worth more money than a lot of the car manufacturers. <laughs> well, I mean, don't get me started on the stock market because that's a strange thing. Full stop. But it surely should be a warning flag to us. Yeah, it is. Um, but um, we're just, you know, New Zealand is just letting the rest of the world get on with it, and we'll just. Um, you know, protect, we're just protecting our, our double cab ute at the moment. Mm. Um, there's a, you know, if you look at the sales of vehicles, um, double cab utes are like one to six on the, on the top sellers list. Um, and they're fringe benefit tax uh, exempt. So, you know, they, they save five grand um, every year on that as well. Um, so companies buy them and we get a lot of secondhand double cab utes. Um, if we had decent policies around low emission vehicles um, and removed the fringe benefit benefits on double cab utes, I think we'd see huge changes in our buying, certainly from companies. Yeah, um, um, yeah I'm, I'm a fleet manager and I, I have nine vehicles um, and I'd love to be able to get a low emission vehicle, but you know, the rational um, accountant says, but then we have to pay five grand for that low emission vehicle. <laughs> and fringe benefit tax, in fact, is more than that, probably more like eight, because they're so expensive. Um, and, um, you know, that won't get past, yeah, won't get past finance. So you're stuck with double cab utes. So, so why are we in a Bad policy. Yes. <laughs> Bad policy. So why are we in a, well, fundamentally, why are we in a position where, um, take Labour, for example, and, uh, you know, we have to give Labour credit where credit's due, just like we have to give any 
policy when the credit's due when it's a good policy and especially with the way that Auntie Cindy <laughs> handled the coronavirus and what kind of stuff was was the envy of the world and rightly so in many respects yeah. you know and you can get into pedantics about it of you know what essential services should have been open and shouldn't have been open in level four and all, all of those kind of things yeah. um, but then to me, it's confusing where you see uh, a party like Labour and Jacinda um, do something from a very people-friendly, moralistic standpoint. And yet when it comes to, you know, radical environmental changes to commit to, cli to, to addressing climate change, um, there doesn't seem to be much on the cards. And is that just because yeah, well, we're, we're in an election year and they're just trying to hedge their bets? Yeah, so... Um, they'll point to you know the zero carbon act um, and say that's that's that was a huge gain that was a huge win for the previous government and they're right it was but it, it's not the be all and end all and it's still got to be really pushed you know we've got targets hooray how, how are we going to get there well you know how are we going to get there is to actually do something about agriculture emissions actually do something about um, uh, transport emissions um, and actually do something about uh, industrial emissions so you know Way we've got a framework that's fantastic. Now let's do something to actually succeed in, in those goals, um, because that's what's missing at the moment. Uh, well, it's, you know, it's very easy for a political party to say we commit. Yeah, to we commit. We commit to the Paris Protocol and yeah, commit right. to addressing climate change. But actually, got to do it. Transport emissions are huge. So forty percent of our forty percent of our emissions. So we need to do something within about New that. Zealand. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and you know, agriculture is big too. So we've got to do both. You know, it's not or, it's and. You've got to do everything. No, so you've got to yeah. improve the, the um, cogen uh, facilities. So, you know, uh, Frontera is using gas and, and coal to dry milk powder. Um, so um, we want to reduce, we've got um, a zero waste policy for the Greens um, and we want to get that, that enacted. Um, but that means, you know, a lot more sorting, a lot more recycling and a sorting of waste so that we don't stick, like, I think 60% of our waste is from construction. And oh, a lot of that, a lot of that's going to be wood. Yeah. So, you know, why don't you just separate it out and... Makes and, some, makes yeah, some electricity from it. It makes some electricity from it, because instead of burning coal. So you've got to replace, replace the coal with, you know, waste wood or waste paper or waste whatever. Um, well, yeah, also you find yourself sometimes in a ridiculous situation where actually if you, if you look at your, your refuge at the end of a month and you've got a pile of, of, of unrecyclable plastic, probably one of the best things you can do is just stick in a pile and burn it. Because by the yeah. time... By if, the you, time if you can remove the, remove the toxic... Um, emissions, if you can get a decent catalytic, catalytic converter to remove those, um, yeah. and maybe um, you know they've they've got uh, um, carbon storage as well, so that you could store the carbon that's emitted. Um, that'd be great, yeah. but um, we're not quite there yet. Yeah. Uh, you know they do a lot of um, um, uh, waste burning in Sweden and other other places. So you know there's a big um, fight against the the Dome Valley landfall. So here's an interesting question for you, and it's, a, it's actually it's a, it's a pretty important one, I think. Um, you and I can sit here in our reasonably privileged position of living in a lovely part of the world, yep. um, not worrying when the next meal's coming from, 
pontificating about all of these wonderful green things we can do to make the world a better place to live in. But the other side of the argument is, yes, these things will cost money and jobs and it will affect the economy. And what about my potential to, to make money, put food on the table, look after my retirement? So, and that's, I think, always been the issue of, you know, oh, yes, you know, the green and the sustainable stuff is all very well. Yeah, but, but it's got to be paid for. But in reality, and then, how yeah. does it affect me type of thing? Yeah, that's right. So most elections come back down to who who doesn't promise a tax increase. It's the economy dummy. Yeah. That was, that's still the fundamental thing, yeah. isn't it? We are the economy dummy. Yes. So, you know, people are the economy, and we've got to look after everybody. So we're a low-wage economy because yeah. people don't get paid enough. No. Um, and but they're not about done. dropping the... Latest the minimum wage. Well, latest national cost of money. Yeah, yeah. They don't. Well, they don't want to raise it. So okay. uh, it's, it's going to twenty bucks next year. That's from eighteen ninety. You know, um, Labor's done a really good job at, at, at getting that minimum wage up over the last few years, um, and even this year they didn't call it off um, when the pandemic hit. So that was really good, um, as far as I'm concerned. Um, not so much for some other people, because um, I want to get to a, a decent high wage economy. And I think the way to do that is um, we need more capital investment because, you know, our productivity is low because we don't invest in, in capital equipment. You know, um, now, again, there are arguments that say, well, those, that, that equipment will just replace jobs. OK, so <laughs> that's been an argument since, you know, um, agriculture started changing and we see other jobs created. Um, you know, it's been a hundred years of of productivity gains. So, um, you know, robots and um, you know, fast machines replacing manual labour makes the workplace safe, um, and it gets um, improved profitability for the company that's doing it, and therefore they can, you know, pay more. And that's how we get to a you know a higher income. Um, um, they pay more, but, but there's an argument that, that creates less jobs. But then that's an interesting point. In the, yeah, well, that's exactly it. Inevitably, that's the yeah. direction in which the world is moving. Yeah, but we haven't seen that play out, you know. Okay. So, you know, we used to have huge numbers of jobs on the farms, and then they industrialised. So, again, there were less, less farmers um, and less people on those farms. Um, all the manual labour moved away, so more, more people in the city. Um, but more manufacturing, more services, because the economy's growing. Mm -hmm. You know, um, people are being paid more so they can buy more. You know, there are arguments around, you know, overconsumption. However, mm. if we can get to a, a, a high-wage economy um, where people are paid, you know, decent amounts of money for their labour um, or skill, um, then um, we can... Um, uh, reduce the stress on the lowest socioeconomic um, families. We can um, reduce the family violence that that stress causes, and then it has knock-on effects for our <laughs> whole community of, you know, um, better well-being outcomes for um, everybody. So less people in prison, less people in in, um, uh, in hospitals. Um, you know, less people dependent on social welfare. So better education outcomes, better um, social outcomes. Everything will flow if we can start raising that, that wage. Um, mm. It'll give an incentive for people to get off welfare and go work if they're being paid more. So not just minimum wage, but living wage. Mm. And I look at Australia and their minimum wage 
is equivalent to what our living wage would be. That's their minimum wage. Okay. Now, in order to get that, <clears throat> we probably need to look at how we um, structure our tax. So, you know, the Greens have changes they want to make. We want to bring in higher income, um, higher brackets for, for tax, um, but we also want to bring in a wealth tax. Now, this wealth tax is an interesting thing, and I was talking to Chris Bank about this yesterday because it's it's one of those it's one of those great opportunities for a political soundbite and a political soundbite and a and a quick dig at something without completely understanding the policy. You know, because uh, people just thought that you know if my, here I am, we're both working, we're struggling to to pay the mortgage, and we're struggling to to send the kids to school and and, and go on holiday. But we're in Auckland, our house is worth over a million, so we're going to be taxed on it because we're apparently wealthy. But that's not the case because well, you sort if of... They, you, if they're paying a mortgage, they aren't wealthy. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, it's net wealth. Take off the mortgage off that $1 million house and you probably don't have a million dollars. So so if I want to kind of... And it's $2 million for for partners. So. Yeah, so again, we don't linger on it too much because the, ho the whole idea of these little conversations is people can go, there's lots of places yeah, where you can look right. and compare policies and, and, and tick boxes and that type of thing. But my understanding is, you know, unless you're living in a $2 million house, the two of you, and unless you've got zero mortgage, you're not going to pay a, a cent. And even then, you know, if it's, if it's worth two and a half million, you know, you're going to pay two and a half grand a year each. Yeah, something yeah, those. that's right. Two percent. Yeah. Uh, well, t so one percent, yeah. you know, um, of of, that, yeah. of over a million. If you if you got over two million net wealth, then you're paying two percent. But if there's two of you on the on the deed for the property, then does that yeah. make it one? Does that again? Yeah, does so, that half it or yeah. not? Um, yeah, 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 it does. Okay. So you know, you got to be two million um, across the couple. Right. So so what you're going to so let's say this got in and. What we, what's the Greens going to do with that cash? Um, just social welfare. Yeah, social welfare. Okay. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, housing in particular, because raised benefits. Well, we've got a lot of uh, social housing policies, so we want to. One, one of the one of the factors, one of the main factors, of of how our high um, uh, house prices is the fact that gov the government over the last twenty years stopped investing in state houses. Um, you know, we had. Uh, Ruth and Asia, um, mother of all budgets, back in the 90s, um, and um, and um, we just stopped investing in social social housing. So um, prior to that, the government was quite a big investor in, in housing. Well, at least you come from a country where they just stopped investing rather than sold it off. Well, <laughs> so o over the nine years of the last uh, national government, um, I think state houses decreased by 60. <laughs> You know, okay. nine years, yeah. and it decreased by sixty. It's just ridiculous, you know. So yes, they were selling off, you know, very um, 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 cheap state houses in you know uh, St Helier borders, like Glen Innes, <laughs> um, for property development, which then made a shitload of money. So um, yeah, but we need to start investing in, in, in housing. And the government needs to start investing in housing, um, and that's not Kiwi Build. So Kiwi Build is, is yeah, that's been a bit bad, interesting. Yeah. Well, it's a it's a badly sold. It was badly sold. So Kiwi Build wasn't the government building houses. Kiwi Build was the government underwriting property developers to de-risk. So the property developer would de-risk their investment, um, and they would build you know, slightly cheaper houses, more slightly cheaper houses. So instead of building, you know, 10 um, expensive houses, 
we try and get them to build um, 10 uh, affordable houses, so still 500,000, that's not really that affordable, but 10 um, affordable houses and maybe five expensive houses, all in the same, same area, um, for the same sort of development. So why hasn't it worked? Well, because the property developers don't have that risk. <laughs> Yeah, because it's been under, underwritten by the government. Yeah, well, they, well, they, they don't have an appetite to, to, to build affordable houses, you know. Um, as far as they're concerned, they make more money building expensive houses. So they build expensive houses. That's how, you know, they don't have a risk profile, which means that they need to under, get the government to underwrite them. Um, so, yeah, some of them still did it because, you know, um, they could see the advantages of de-risking their investment, but the others um, either didn't do it and remained really profitable, or they just went bankrupt in Phoenix somewhere else because, you know, left the tradies and, and the suppliers with the bag because, you know, that's, that's what they can do. So, you know, where's the risk in them? <laughs> where's the risk for them? <laughs> Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm, I probably won't cover the, some of the same ground I talked about with Chris, but we talked about some things in depth about the readdressing the, the, the Resource Management Act. And oh, everyone wants to, wants to redo the RMA. Yeah. You know, all, all parties want to, want to rewrite the RMA. We all have different ideas. It seems crazy that you actually can't even, you know, if you just want to build a small house, you're kind of looking at 30 or 40, 50 grand before you even stick a shovel yeah, in the Yeah, that's outrageous. <laughs> Is that, is that just is that just a, a local Auckland council tax? No, no, it's <laughs> everywhere. Yeah, yeah. The the compliance is just horrendous. But yeah, so every everyone wants to make it. Um, everyone wants to change the RMA, and there are various policies on um, on what we need to do. Uh, the various ideas on what we need to do. So getting cross party um, consensus on that um, is going to be really difficult. Really difficult. Yeah, well, you know, let's just see how that plans out, I guess. I mean, well, so, so, so what we've done, what the, what the government did do was um, bring in the new housing and urban development um, ministry. So, you know, um, we had the Ministry of Housing, but now it's housing and urban development. So help councils, um, you know, plan better. Um, but that was only released in, you know, their policy statement was only released. So the, the um, ministry was set up in 2018 right. and their national policy statement was only released in August. Okay. Um, and all the councils have a year to, to respond to it. Now, obviously, Auckland's got their unitary plan, um, so we need to see how that's going to play into it. But, um, you know... And again, you know, I, I play my lefty socialist cards on my sleeve, and, you know, fundamentally, we can create a society where people can have warm, comfortable, affordable shelter and be able to put some degree of food on the table and educate their kids... Yeah. Um, surely that's a better society for yeah. all of us. Right. Maslow, Maslow's needs, you know, yeah. water, food, shelter. That's what we need. We need clean water. We need stand and a, bit of, a little bit of love. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> that goes without saying. Um, but yeah, we need warm houses, affordable warm houses. You know, um, we need um, to support our farmers to pr produce great food. We need um, to support our industry and farmers to make sure our waterways are clean and people can swim in them and drink the water. So, yeah, and, and water resilience. So, look, I mean, talking about people's, people's health, et cetera, the other thing on the referendum um, this time around is the, the cannabis legalisation or decriminalisation bill or whatever you want to do it. And, again, um, putting my cards on the table, I've never historically been a recreational cannabis user. I've always preferred a nice, 
nice glass of Merlot or something, yeah. <laughs> nice glass of red. Um, but interestingly, in the past few years, for health reasons, I've been taking a bit of CBD and a few other little bits and pieces. And I know friends and colleagues in responsible positions of leadership and business that function quite happily with an, with a, with recreational cannabis. Um, and to me, it's not so much of a bill. There's, there's, it's not an argument about. You, we can get people around the table and you'll never agree. It's very polarizing. People will say, well, it's, cannabis is good for you because of this or it's bad for you and it causes this. But to me, the, the referendum isn't an argument about whether cannabis is actually good or bad for you. It's an argument of how do we regulate it? And yeah, make this it, is about and, control and, and regulation. It's making control and regulation. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, that's already there. Uh, so People it's already, already using it. Yeah, and then look, prohibition just doesn't work. Yeah, that's And right. again, it's interesting when you look at countries, I think, again, this is one of these things where I could be completely wrong, so please go and do your own research. But my belief is, my understanding is countries like, say, Portugal, for example, who were adult enough to stand up and go, look, it's not the drug that's the issue, it's the, it's the use is it the issue. And I think they decided they would kind of categorize every drug the same. So whether it was cannabis, cocaine. And treated it as a health issue. Yeah, and I just treated it as a health issue. So it's like, we, they, they, they almost came out and said, look, we recognize there are hundreds of thousands of responsible cannabis users who use it every day. But we also know that there are people who have terrible cannabis addictions. So instead of criminalizing, you know, you, they were almost going to the point where they can say, um, you know that we can point to a recreational cannabis user, user who their life is impacted, impacted much more negatively than this casual heroin user, almost. So they took the they took the um, the spotlight away from the individual drug and treated it as a health issue. So, I mean, do, do the Greens have a, an overriding policy or view on this? And also, I mean, what's your take on it, man? Well, you know, um, we've got Chloe Champion in it, so the Greens are very um, pro. Um, passing this bill but uh, so why well again it's about control and regulation it's already there prohibition doesn't work treated as a health issue we can get people the help they need um uh removes removes the control of supply from gangs um who uh i'm you know given to believe that um in certain areas they won't sell it because they want to push pee because it's a bigger money money oh, spinner for them right, yeah, yeah. Uh, it has much worse outcomes for the users um, but so um, yeah like we do with tobacco and alcohol which are also extremely damaging for users um, you know we we bring in some control and regulation and treat it as a health issue that's what we do for those that's what we should do for this um, again I'm not a user uh, it makes me throw up and then go to sleep so I don't really like it never have although I grew up in West Auckland so you know it's <laughs> ubiquitous yeah. um, but um, yeah we believe um, and, and this referendum isn't going to pass a bill unlike the the end of choice um, end of life choice bill that that will pass if, if everyone votes for it this just allows the bill to be debated <laughs> Right, okay. <laughs> you know, you're just saying yes. You can debate it in Parliament. Right. Okay. Yeah. So you know, this bill isn't isn't set. It um, still needs to be debated and go through all that parliamentary process. So mm. it's a draft. And so, what's your sort of 
you know, a finger in the air gauge of, of where the other main parties stand on this? Uh, or was, well, it, was so it very much an in, in individualistic? No, National had come out and said no. So, yeah, right. yeah, they're not letting their people support it. So uh, why? Uh, Any idea? Because they're tough on crime and the causes of crime, well, even, if, well, even if... Well, logically, it, then you should decriminalise it yeah, so you take right. it away from the criminals. That's exactly it, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So does this come back from us living in this, this sort of vacuous, short, soundbite, lack of critical thinking environment that we seem to be entering, that, that people just go, no, it's bad for you. We yeah, allow it. that's right. Yeah, yeah. And it is bad for you, but so is tobacco, so is alcohol. Um, but we still allow it. And um, people have, um, have the freedom of choice. Hmm. So ACT will support it, I think. Um, because they're libertarians um, and they believe in individual rights. Okay. Um, we obviously support it. Um, I think Labour's a conscience vote. Um, you know, they'll have uh, some segments of their um, voters who will really be against it um, and some who will support it. Um, but yeah, um, New Zealand First, I'm not sure where they stand. Um, I haven't really heard anything about it. They're, they're more yeah, focused on trying to just stay in Parliament. But I think if, if ever there was a, an opportunity to, to create another multi-billion dollar industry within New yeah, Zealand. Yeah, that's right. Well, med medicinal cannabis um, is, is passed, so th we can create that industry, yeah. um, and that'll be great. I'd like to see hemp. Yeah, you know, I mean, hemp's, a, hemp's an stigma, amazing stuff. Have the stigma removed. Well, yeah, I mean, what you is know, I mean, yeah, hemp, hemp should Hemp should be ubiquitous as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, you know, yeah. I've got, I've got some hemp clothing. Uh, I've got absolutely hemp amazing paper. product. Absolutely amazing. Um, yeah. And I don't, again, don't quote me, but I understand that hemp is just a male cannabis plant yeah, to a degree yeah, of a certain right. varieties. Yeah, yeah, and it's, um, it doesn't have the um, doesn't have so the properties. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, but it's phenomenal, and we need more research and. Um, we could start that industry. So, you know, I think... Um, and I suspect with the, the New Zealand, you know, the, even though it's probably not justified their clean, green New Zealand image, it would surely make the, the export of, of New Zealand medicinal cannabis products be very lucrative, I would have thought. Yeah, I would have thought so. And, it, it, you know, it may, um, thinking aloud, you know, allow the gangs that are currently controlling, controlling it to go legal. Um, you know, so, yeah, whether they drop everything else, um, who knows, but mm. certainly, you know, it would give them a, a route to, to legality and, and take them away from, from the criminal attitudes that they have. So is your, is your personal take on this very much that, if I'm reading this correctly, that um, prohibition won't work, people are going to use it regardless, yeah. um, and all we're doing here is instead of it becoming a very profitable cash crop for criminal gangs. It becomes a very profitable cash crop for, for tax revenue that we can pump back into society. Pretty much. Uh, and um, better outcomes for, for, for users. So yeah, remove the stigma. Um, people are, you know, there are um, people arguing about uh, workplace environments, but those, those laws already exist. Yeah. <laughs> so you don't need new laws for that. Yeah. They just, they just need the, the continual enforcement of exactly. the system. That's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, people are going on about driving. Well, those laws exist. <laughs> so yes, we need to change 
change it, but I don't see a massive uptake just because it's legal. There's no, uh, there's no argument that it's very damaging to certain sectors of society, and also, you know, you've got to be off your head to touch that stuff below the age of like 25 or oh, something right. because of the, yeah. the, the damage it can do to can developing be, brains yeah, that's and that exactly kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but again, we can control it. But if it's, if, it's, if, it's, if it's controlled and regulated, at least we can control the age. Yeah, that's right. So, okay, so we've covered that one. End of life referendum, I guess my take on that is it's, it's your life. Yeah, that's <laughs> you, right. you, You're aware of what suffering you're going through. Yeah, that's exactly um, right. And in all fairness... Uh, Some been really bad misinformation being put out. Such as? Ah, uh, you know, so you see those billboards, um, you know, uh, that people can end their life without parental consent. And going, well, first of all, you've got to be over 18, so you don't need parental consent. You know, it affects over 18. And you're terminally ill within six months. Yeah. You know, within six months, terminally ill. Um, yeah, and you're obviously in a lot of pain. Give some people some dignity to, to choose. Um, you know, there are medical professionals who who are worried about how how they'll be held against uh, with it. Right. Um, so by by bringing it into law and creating an act, we can protect the medical professionals basically from their concerns. Hopefully, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, um, and there, there's worried um, people about undue influence. But yeah, I think um, yeah, if you've got six months left to live and you, and you are suffering, pain. yeah, you know better than anyone. Um, and you can make that choice yourself. And we should give them the dignity of doing that. So what are the arguments against it? Um, people be coerced. Um, people who, who um, don't have the ability to make the decision um, will be uh, led to make a decision. Um, yeah, that's the main ones I hear. But, um, They're I, quite tenuous. Yeah, they are, I think. I think. I mean, how do you coerce somebody? To, <laughs> I mean, surely if you co want to coerce somebody with a terminal illness... Uh, anyway, we could, we could go down that rabbit hole all afternoon, I guess. Yeah. So, look, on from health, um, people know Rachel and I are slightly... Uh, uh, slight educational anarchists, I guess. You know, we homeschooled Miles for a while. I see most of the education going on around the world has been unfit for purpose anymore. We're not Victorian eras anymore, trying, yeah, to, produce, right. trying to produce um, workers in, in one industry for life. Um, so, what, so again, so again what, how, what's Green's view on education and also you personally? And also, I know you, you, you're your partner. Uh, yes, my partner was uh, an educator for 17 years, a high school educator. She, she worked for the Ministry of Education. Um, she has very strong views about um, education. So, um, you know, she'd say that um, the, the, um, the Victorian era of, of rote learning and, and, and having... Um, you know, um, core subjects is gone. You know, it has, it's, it's supposed to have been gone for a while now. Um, and um, uh, it's just been badly implemented <laughs> into schools. So, you know, again, change management. Um, and you've got school boards um, run by non-professionals who make the final decisions on who they're employing and where the schools, the direction of the school. Mm. So, um, 
um, yeah, um, you get some bad out, well, not, yeah, some poor outcomes through lack of known how best practice uh, around the world um, and how to introduce it into New Zealand and how to support um, teachers in doing it. And, you know, um, teachers haven't been supported. Um, we, um, there are a couple of parties who want to make it a competitive market. Um, and, you, yeah, so you're going to get, um, you know, we should pay the best teachers more and that will encourage everyone to be a, a better teacher. Well, yeah, so the best teachers will go to private schools, uh, away from low decile schools. You'll, um, and, you know, just reinforce those poor outcomes um, for the people that can't afford the education and it'll all just go into, you know, those really expensive charter schools or private schools or, you know, high decile schools. Cause, and you'll get more people um, moving into areas and increasing their property prices in those areas to just, you know, get into that school. Um, or, um, you know, more scholarships for, you know, some uh, young boy who's great at rugby to get into a private school. So how can we do, how can we do this better from the Greens' perspective? Well, um, you need, again, social equity. Um, support all schools. Which is different than the quality. Which is different than the quality. Yeah, that's right. So, just talk a little bit about why equity and equality is different in, from a social perspective. Well, so um, on the right, you have people who are going, "You're trying to make us all the same." So, we're not. <laughs> we just want equal opportunity, and the only way to get equal opportunity is to have some some. Um, uh, Equality in the system where um, some equity in the system where um, you support all schools um, e equally, so that the people in you know South Auckland, those low, low social um, economic areas, um, have just as much opportunity um, at getting a great education as the people in Remera, um, and that currently doesn't happen. It's interesting because. Um you know, if one looks at some of the Scandinavian, you know, we have we have to acknowledge that Scandinavia is, you know, while it moves up and down the the, the global educational charts, you know, up and down over the years, it's seen as a as a clear example of how things can be done well. Yeah. And one of the interesting things I find there is several Scandinavian nations, um, there's no private schools. You know, the yeah, best school right. you, the best school yeah. you can go to is your local, local school. school. Yeah, that's right. Because, and also there's something really. There's something really important about having that social makeup within the school, you know. So you have somebody that, that comes from a, from a very low low socioeconomic yeah. background, and you have you know multimillionaires kids going to the same school, and it becomes a very healthy environment because it reflects society so, as a whole. That's right. Um, so yeah, I mean, where do you where do you? Be, I mean, I have so many issues with education. Interestingly, the the, the school that Mars goes to is is uh, I'm not going to mention names because I don't want to kind of have any favouritism, but it has an, a fantastic policies on, on those type of things. And also, um, occasionally I'll I'll take Miles out of school for filming and interviewing mm. and media experiences, and it's classed as off-site learning rather yeah, than yeah. being away from school because they recognise that's yeah, a valuable that's right. experience. Um, but it seems an exception rather than a rule. Yeah, yeah, but again, you're having boards run the schools, so you know you don't have that, um, and they just want the best outcome for their school. So you you enter that competitive model again, um, 
and competition between schools can lead to some bad outcomes. But if all you're going to do is measure metrics, then yeah, then you just, right. you, just become, you just become a bunch of bean counters yeah, where right. you get to the position where you actually uh, spend more time. In you actually ex- ex- exclude children that that won't up your average yeah, exam exactly scores. It. Yep. Yep. <laughs> that's exactly it. Or you um, you know tweak things. Um, yeah. And uh, and the learning to make sure that. Um, you get certain results. So are there any specific policies from the, from the Green perspective that would fundamentally change the way that things are done in schools? Uh, well, or, or is it a gentle, we'd, certainly, we'd certainly fund schools a lot more. We want to see a lot more funding in education. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that would be a, that'd be a really big help to start with. Um, just yeah make sure that they have enough money to to have um, decent environments and that teachers are paid well and um, you know look forward to to going and giving the kids the best experience they can possibly give but yeah I'm I'm not across the the education policy enough to go into um, into detail on it so it goes look you know look we can we can go on for another three or four hours but let's talk let's just turn to um Let's look outside of New Zealand. Let's look at New Zealand. Let's look at the, the globally at the moment. We're in a very, very strange time globally. Yeah. You know, one only has to look across the, across the Pacific to the US at the minute and, and, and across the oceans to the UK and Europe to see that everything's in a lot of turmoil. Very uh, polarising opinions, very um, people living in their own echo chambers, lack of critical thinking, lack of empathy, lack of the lack of ability to sit down and discuss breakdown of societies. Yeah, breakdown of societies and stuff. Even to the point where um, even to the point where where where, where people are, are foreseeing, you know, civil war for want of a better thing. And yet if we look to the if we look to the global economy, we you know the, the Dow Jones, for example, never re- every time it historically went above twenty thousand, there was a crash, and here we are. It was heading towards thirty thousand before it sort of started being pulled back. So, obviously, the world we live in is run on some degree of neoliberal economics from the nineteen seventies. With all the things we've got going around us, with with the climate emergency, with growing inequality around the world. Is it time for neoliberalism to Absolutely. get its get its nail in its coffin? Yeah. And then, how painful is that going to be? Yeah. So simple question. You, yeah. You, <laughs> you've got central banks who are printing money and giving it to banks. To you know, and the idea is that those banks will give it to people who need it to invest in companies or whatever. Well, trickle down economics yeah, never but, works. But they don't. The banks don't because they're not incentivised to do that. So they put it into into share markets, and those share markets get sustained. Yeah. So you know, you, when back even back in the eighties, you know, when you're looking at shares, you could look at the profitability of the company and and you know have a um, uh, a value to earnings ratio, um, and the share price would be roughly about that. And people would look at you know get some inside information on a company that. Um, um, was doing, you know, 
extraordinarily well and they'd go in and start investing in that company. But these days, you know, the, you get companies like Tesla who aren't turning a profit, um, have never turned a profit, and, you know, they're worth more than Toyota, a profitable company who's been in business for, you know, decades. So how does that figure? Because people aren't, aren't they, it's, it's not the shares have no relation to the profitability of the company. It's a bet. They're betting on way in the future yep. that um, you know Tesla will win some war, uh, competitive war against the ice manufacturers, so the internal combustion engine manufacturers, um, and um, overtake um, yeah Toyota and Ford and GM. Um, but come in here, Obi. Obi wants yeah. to come say hello to Zephyr. You know, they're not based in reality. <laughs> those 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 share markets are not based in reality. They're totally, totally, yeah, well, disconnected. I, disconnected. I, I, I listened to somebody, um, and I can't remember who it was now, but they they almost they almost compared global finances at the moment as a sort of a, of a global finance apartheid. So you either could access money, you can either access global money at next to no cost, or you can access it at great cost, depending. So yeah. you're almost in the position where large corporations can access huge amounts of money, money yeah, at virtually zero percent right. interest and just effectively buy back their own shares. Yeah, that's exactly it. Uh, whereas you and I want to get a car loan or a mortgage loan and then we're, we're paying our, our percentage points above base rates. And, and we, when you bring that back down to our local economy, so you have people who have property who therefore have access to vast amounts of credit based off that property. Yeah. And then and you we have, see that in Auckland. Yeah, that's right. You know, I know people personally who have remortgaged their house to buy a, a boat, a new car and a jet ski. Yeah, that's right, because property is going at, you know, 14%. Um, and then you have people who are locked out of that market forever now because there's no way they're going to be able to afford, you know, a, a 750, well, I think the average is now $800,000 house. So they're forever renters. Um, and they can, if they can afford to rent. Yeah, if they can afford to rent, because you know, rent's based on the property value, because someone's got to get a return. It was interesting. I, I remember last time I went to New York, um, and Soho, you know, great, vibrant, funky place and all that type of stuff. You know, if you wanted to open a shop in Soho, you'd be on a waiting list for years for yeah. a little place to come open. Yeah. And talking to friends recently, there's just swathes of empty shops. And talking to a friend I knew in the UK who was an equity broker, we used to work at the Stock Exchange, then moved to New York, to Wall Street. I was having a conversation with him. He was saying, well, the problem is, you know, this an asset bubble. So like, if you were a landlord and you, owe these, yeah. you own these three shops in, in Canal Street or something in Soho, and you then go, okay, it's time for me to leverage against these properties and buy some more properties or buy a condo. Um, then, you know, you go to the bank, the bank says, okay, your, your property is now worth this much, so therefore, to justify that increase in price so we can give you the money to leverage, you then have to double your rent because your property is now worth this much. Mm. And now you're in a strange position, strange position in, in many cities around the world where you've got empty shops and premises in, in primary locations because of the, the, the equity bubble in commercial property. Yeah, that's right. And which just, just, it just, it just makes no light. And, uh, and obviously in New Zealand, we say the same thing. And we're not going to go into it because I, I talked about this with, with, with Chris in some depth about the lack of capital gains tax and all of that type of thing and the differentiation between 
what is your family home and you know for me it seems that kiwis have historically seen property as some kind of investment vehicle rather than a house for for, for many people yeah. but that is always at the expense of future generations trying to get a home yeah that's right what yeah. can we do to solve that well so you need to um to improve regulations for renters to give them some strength um, so that they can have some security when they're renting. So like, so in for Germany example, where a huge majority of people rent properties, yeah. they have government guarantees and you almost have like almost 20 year rents. Yeah, that's right. Situation. Yeah, because you're going to get people who are renting for life. And if you're raising a family, then you want to secure, you want to secure that residence. So, as it, so make it your home. You don't want to be moving those kids around all the time. That's really disruptive. But so we need to, you know, give renters some security because they are going to be forever renters and the renting, renting market's going to grow. Um, and um, we need to do something about the housing bubble. So, you know, you've got a tax-free um, asset um, and it is only rational for people to keep pouring money into that tax-free asset class, you know. If you've got property uh, and you're making tax-free gains, you're going to keep pouring money into that. You're not going to invest in businesses. Um, you're not going to invest in shares. You might diversify your portfolio as well, but you know, a lot of it is just going to be property because it's tax-free. You know, so this is and it's growing. It's at eight percent to fourteen percent. Right. What other investment can you get that's going to grow at eight to fourteen percent tax-free? It doesn't doesn't matter if you're not renting it because you're still growing eight to fourteen percent tax-free. But what that 8 to 14% is doing is, is making it very much okay, I'm okay, Jack. Yeah, that's exactly it. And then making it almost impossible for the newly qualified young couple who can't afford to yeah, live in Yeah, and it also the, means that we don't have the revenue. We need to invest in education and health. So, you know, we've got this massive problem um, with, our, with our pensions. So, you know, we spend $15 billion on pensions. We only spend $15 billion on education and probably $18 billion on health. $15 billion alone on pensions. That's huge. Um, if, you, if you were to take um, the, the um, health costs and the other uh, social welfare costs for elderly, you're probably looking at about $23 billion. That's almost a quarter of our, of our spend on 65 plus. So we need to be, we need to invest in the future and that's in kids, you know, because someone's going to have to pay for all those pensions and it's growing, you know, we've got a big problem coming up. We're not quite in Japan, but we're not far off. Yeah, that's right. So we can either uh, unlock the gates and just let in a whole lot of immigrants to pay, to pay for all these pensions, um, or <coughs> we're going to have to do something about it. So that they've been... All parties have been kicking that down the road for a long, long time, and well, they I need think, to stop. I think even globally, the whole that whole, you know, the whole global situation, we've just been kicking the can down the road globally. Yeah, that's and right. It's coming to the point where it's actually yeah. tangible, and the effects of that are actually now tangible and yeah, really so, palpable you know, to people. The under twenties and the over sixty fives largely don't pay tax. You know, so um, the over sixty fives are asset rich. Um, they're not. Most of our tax comes from income, you know, and GST, but income. Um, you can't ask the 50% of the population who is actually earning an income to pay for everything, especially when you've got the other 50% not earning and you're paying $15 million in, in pensions. So, 
you know, that's just not going to work out. You need, you need another, you need to increase that revenue. And the only way we can do it, because everyone's pouring their money into property, is to start taxing the property. So capital gains, which, you know, Labour has already said no way. So why do you think they've said no way? Because it oh, seems a bit I have of a no idea. Is this just is this just a we want to be elected again? Yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> yeah. People people are scared of their dollar, so we're not going to say we're yeah. taking. Yeah, off it's them. it's um, yeah, bending bending to the grey power again, um, and the property class, um, which is you know probably half the population have a house, um, but but there needs to be a different from from my perspective, there needs to be a differentiation between your home and investment properties. So your home is your home, okay? Yeah. And, and It makes is, it really difficult. Is it, is it unreasonable to say that you know, a family has a primary home and okay, you, let's say you don't get capital gains tax, you know, you move house or you sell it or something and you're gonna put that into another property or it's your primary home, that's fine. And I think that reassures a lot of people because for most people, all they have, all they want is their family home. It's not, you know, their house is a home. It's not an investment vehicle. It's somewhere where they're gonna raise their family yeah, right. or live their life yeah. at. The difference comes when the amount of people I've met in New Zealand who, you know, have two or three or four or ten plus properties. Yeah, that's right. Just because they've been able to leverage one off the other, off the other, off the, the other. other. That's right. And they're growing it. And, and eight to fifteen percent and so tax free. Yeah. So all the all they're basically doing is letting the banks print more money to do that. Mm. Um, and also blocking entry to future generations to a housing market. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So we need to look at, at our tax structure and you can't just keep hitting up income, you know. So we, we do want to um, uh, increase the, the bands at the top, um, so they're paying more. Um, and, you know, personally... So I'd, what would be the threshold for that? So at the minute, so what would the thresholds change to? Yeah, so um, for us it's 100,000 at 37% and 150 at um, 40, uh, 42%. Mm -hmm. um, so that would be the new rates. Um, for Labour, they're talking about 180,000 at at 39 percent yeah but our you know our our um our nominal tax rates so just because you've got you know a 30 37 39 or 42 percent up at the top that's not what you're paying you know you're only paying 33 percent or in fact 31 percent because of you know the, the other bands below you so you know most i think most people are paying like 28 percent these days um and we need to 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 expand our, our tax take across you know the other other asset classes so and property is the main one so you can either do it through a wealth tax which is what we're proposing now uh, because the capital gains has been called off uh, you know so why from the greens perspective why the wealth tax rather than capital gains is it because you can almost guarantee a, a regular income from regular tax income from that as opposed to when somebody finally gets around to well, something? So or? it hits all, all asset classes. So using a wealth tax hits all asset classes, not just property. Um, and, um, you know, it's just, you know, it, it's very level playing field. Um, whereas if you're just targeting property, um, then you're targeting a certain certain market. Um, and they'll just move, move their money into another asset class or just move it over, over offshore. Um, so, you know, you, you target all the money. Um, and that doesn't mean it'll include the family home. Because, you know, your wealth is your wealth. But, you know, 
it's only going to affect six percent of six percent of the of the taxpayers. Yeah, exactly. So look, I, I, you know, we've been here for a little while. Obi's jumped up to to give you another lick, and he's you're panting away, aren't you, there, buddy? You're right. Um, I guess in closing, how you know, what's your vision for New Zealand? You know, let, let's say there was you know some kind of utopia where <laughs> you, you were in charge of everything. Yeah, so <laughs> utopia. <laughs> Um, well, it's actually not utopia. It's almost like a necessity because unless we change something fundamentally, we're all screwed. Yeah, that's one right. Way or yeah, so you know, um, I want a, a society where you know um, people can raise their family with dignity, no matter where, what level they're at. Um, you know, where they're secure in their home, um, where they're getting um, you know a decent pay for the labour that they give and the schools that they have. Um, I want um, uh, us to recognise that climate crisis is real and we need to do something about it and we need to do something now. I want um, us to do some, take action on, on, um, on uh, the, the growing inequalities for um, outcomes for Māori and Pacifica. So, you know, we, we, we um, have the treaty, the Greens recognise the treaty um, to Te o Waitangi is our founding document, which means that um, we need to involve Māori um, a lot more um, in decision making. You know, we believe in appropriate decision making, so we we think that um, you know local government probably needs to to um, have better representation um, from the people in the areas and um, Hapu and Iwi. Mm. Um, we probably um, want to change um, the way that we look at funding locally, so for um, local councils, so that people have a greater visibility and say in how money is spent locally. Mainly, I just want um, you know to to start reducing the the social inequities that have grown up for the last thirty years since I left school. Um, you know, it's just getting worse and worse and worse. And I think if we can do that, if we can raise our standards, um, be a, a high-wage, high-earning, highly productive economy uh, where people invest in businesses instead of properties and create jobs in those businesses, um, and we go for um, high-end agriculture instead of, you know, chasing the lowest um, cost production, production that we can, um, we'll have much better outcomes for all of us. Um, we'll have a better environment, um, you know, we haven't even touched on fishing, but, um, uh, you know, our seas, <laughs> seas need protecting. And, uh, you know, we, we live a few hundred metres away from the water, so we see it all the time. But, um, you know, uh, the, the, the sedimentation and the runoff and the pollution going into our oceans is horrendous and it's and our quota management is just horrendous you know um yeah our fisheries management is just has produced really poor outcomes since the 80s um fisheries at all times low you know um yeah so we need to protect that uh and we can it's very we can yeah. we can have we can have a, a vibrant fishing industry mm -hmm. um you know since the QMS came in, uh, we've Lots gone from QMS, right? uh, the quota management system okay. for fishing, where we gave um, a few companies 
um, the rights to just rape the sea um, as much as they wanted and just led to bad practices of throwing back you know dead fish because that's not what they wanted or wasn't wasn't part of their quota um, so we went from like 6,000 uh, fishermen to 1,000 fishermen that's bad um, you know lo little local fishing communities like Lee um, uh, have been destroyed around the country um, and it's all centred in the major centres so you know again small businesses have gone out and we've just concentrated everything in these big fish fishing companies bad outcome um, you know loss of jobs loss of community so you know we can change that again we changed it once we can change it back it's just a policy mm. you know and we can do the same for farming um, yeah it's just a policy and it just takes you know having a ch having a chat with each other and deciding what what sort of society we want to live in and again the, the, just you know I've, I've chatted with Chris and I've chatted with you and and one of the things that, that makes me eternally hopeful is that actually you, you take people from different political parties and you sit them down with a glass of beer or a wine and you just have a conversation with them and you find we have far more in common than we have yeah, that's right. against. Yeah. And I'm all for moving away from political point scoring and finger pointing and sound bites and clickbait headlines to a position where even people with opposing views can sit down and talk about them because I've been convinced on more than one occasion against my gut instinct on things by sitting down and talking to people. And um, it just makes us better human beings. Yeah, that's right. We've got to be prepared to talk to everyone and um, involve everyone in the discussion. And uh, it's not, it, you know, it's not us against the farmers. It's not us against the, the fishermen. We want to work with, with, with them to get better outcomes for everybody, uh, fear outcomes for everybody. Um, I'll, I'll drink to that. Yeah. Cheers, Zephyr. Cheers, mate. Thanks right. for the cider. Zephyr, thanks very much. Cheers, mate. <laughs>